You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. All of those of you in the room and um, our online audience, um, and of course to all of our speakers who I'm going to introduce in a minute. Please, if you're in the room, if you could turn your phones on to silent. And if you're tweeting, please do, um, using the hashtag that I think is up on the screen, hashtag Urban Africa. Um, my name's Arabella Fraser. I'm a research fellow here at ODI in the Risk and Resilience Programme. Um, I also convene the Institute's um, working group on urban development. I think some of their researchers are in the room. Um, that's a group that cuts across... Um, all of our programmes uh, to bring together work on urban development and resilience. But our discussion today is going to centre on the question of how we can build resilience for Africa's urban future. Um, as many of you will know, Africa is undergoing a late and fast-paced urbanisation process and its urban population is expected to triple by 2050. Disaster risks in Africa area, Africa's urban areas are rising and in general, the African region is warming faster than the world as a whole, with climate change exacerbating urban disaster risks, both through its direct impacts, but also indirect impacts on water and food security systems, as well as on population movements from rural to urban areas. So this process of demographic and climate change is driving and will continue to drive an increase in the disaster and climate change risks faced in particular by low-income populations in urban areas who are both exposed due to where they live but also extremely vulnerable due to high levels of poverty, informality and the large-scale deficits in infrastructure and services. So the challenge of building urban resilience for Africa's urban future is multifaceted and although there are huge variations, there are also some common features across the region. But it encompasses the need to address uncertain future climate risks in the context of data scarcity, deep inequality, access to critical infrastructure, the, the creation of inclusive economies, environmental health, and critically, the capacities of social actors and institutions, including effective planning and the rule of law. And this question of how risk is evolving with the urbanisation process in Africa is explored in two journal special issues that we're, we're marking today. One, a volume of the journal Environment and Urbanisation, edited by David on my right and, and Sheridan Bartlett, um, on understanding the full spectrum of risks facing urban Africa into the future. And I'm going to ask David to talk a little more about this in a minute. And the other is a forthcoming, forthcoming volume of the International Journal of Disaster Risk Reduction on Africa's Urban Risk and Resilience, um, edited by myself, Hayley Lecker, Mark Pelling from King's College London, and Sue Parnell from the University of Cape Town. And we have some copies of the introduction and the abstracts for that issue floating around if you're interested. Um, and some of the contributing authors are also here in the room. So the papers in the two volumes also start to look at what are the emergent solutions for the future of Africa's urban areas, such as community-based movements, and how can they partner with local governments to deliver solutions that work at scale? And it's really this focus on potential solutions and opportunities that I'd like to draw out today. So we've got about an hour and a half for today's discussion until two o'clock, and then here in London we'll have the opportunity to have tea and coffee from two o'clock and discuss the issues more informally. Um, so we'll kick off by hearing from our invited speakers and then we'll have a Q&A and for those of you online do send your questions to us using the online chat form throughout the event. If you put your name and organisation um, we'll be able to ask those during the Q&A um, 
And before I turn to Matafu here and David, I'm delighted to welcome also Mark Pelling, who's a professor of geography at King's College London and the principal investigator of the Urban Africa Risk Knowledge Programme, which has supported the publication of these two research volumes. His research interests are in the social and institutional aspects of climate change adaptation and disaster risk management. He's been a lead author for the IPCC SREX report in AR5 and in the scoping report, uh, the sixth scoping report uh, for AR6. And in addition to Urban Arc, he leads research into urban transitions towards transformative development pathways and transformative solutions to food security, much in collaboration with Christian Aid. So I'd like to ask Mark to open for us by commenting on what the major opportunities might be for building resilience for Africa's urban future. Mark. Thanks very much, Ari, and thanks ODI for hosting this event. Much appreciated. A quick word on Urban Arc and then some framing thoughts for the discussion to, to offer to the panel. Urban Arc, Urban Africa, Risk Knowledge is a three and a third million pound investment from ESRC and DFID, working across seven cities in sub-Saharan Africa, bringing together universities here uh, and in our sub-Saharan African cities, uh, humanitarian organizations, international alertists in the audience, for example, IIED, uh, UN Habitat, um, and of course, city governments and stakeholder organizations as well. The, the mission behind Urban Arc is to identify and work with practitioners to try and break cycles of risk accumulation. So very much a development uh, problematique around risk, risk management, although we also have, of course, hazards, uh, climate modelling elements to the programme. But just, just three thoughts, really, perhaps to, to offer today in the, in the next minute and a half that I have. Uh, and these are trying to bring together three strands in thinking and practice, I think, that risk management highlights. The, the first is the relationship between resilience and risk management, and a recognition that some of the challenges, particularly around understanding what resilience is in cities is beginning to be resolved through risk management and that there's an opening of a sort of hybrid space, something which one might call risk-sensitive urban development that can begin to be defined around perhaps being inclusive, something that might come from particularly resilience, uh, intricative and representing the whole spectrum of, of risk from risk reduction, preparedness to response. So if one begins to hold that in, in one's head and puts it against the second of these dynamics, which for me is the, the deficit uh, of democracy and technical expertise within cities of sub-Saharan Africa. And this, of course, is a, a long, long process of erosion, but it is structural. It is linked to the behaviour of donors and national governments, but also the way in which city authorities themselves have, have acted. There seems to be, and this then talks to the third point, an opening of creative space at the relationship between city government, the lowest level of democratic representation, and organized civil society. These relationships have been going on for, for many, many years, and people in the room, not least David and Tafu, have been working with these groups for some long time. But particularly around risk management and resilience, there seems to be an opening of a collaborative space recognizing the need to address fundamental processes of urbanization around this new emerging relationship. Uh, it's a strengthening of city authority as well as civil society. And I hope we'll talk to that today. That, that to me, seems to be if there is a, a new space, a new way of working, it's there. And if it's connected to an intellectual or policy agenda, it's this emergence of a more synthetic 
urban risk-sensitive development approach, getting past some, I think, of the, of the drag that resilience has brought, being potentially a you know, complicated and contested idea. So I'll finish there. Thanks very much again to, to Ari and OGI. Thank you, Mark. Well, I'd like to introduce our full panel of speakers and, and then invite them to contribute. We have David Satterthwaite from the International Institute for Environment and Development, Matafu Mwanda from Mazuzi University in Malawi, and online we have Sky Dobson from Slum Dwellers International and Megan Spires from ICLE, which is the Local Governments for Sustainability Network. So we're going to start with David. David is a senior fellow at IAD and visiting professor at University College London. He was coordinating lead author of the chapter on urban adaptation in the fifth assessment of the IPCC and the lead editor for journal Environment and Urbanisation. And his recent books include, although there are many, <laughs> Cities on a Finite Planet, co-edited co with Sheridan Bartlett. So David, if we think about the nature and scale of climate-related risks in urban Africa, Low-income urban populations are affected by a broad range of risks, from everyday health risks to episodic small-scale and large-scale disaster risks. But what are the most critical interventions that African governments and international development partners can take to address these multiple forms of risk now and into the future? Oh, a nice easy question. Can I ask you to think of a city in the global south that you know well, you know best? Do you know the main cause of death? Do you know the main cause of premature death? Do you know the main cause of premature death in informal settlements? But these would seem to be critically important for understanding risk and responses to risk. But why is it so difficult to actually identify such data? Three issues interest me. What are the largest risks facing low-income groups in cities in sub-Saharan Africa? Which of these risks is easily prevented or enormously reduced? And how can we build resilience to the most serious risks? So what are the largest risks faking urban dwellers, Nairobi, Lagos, Mombasa, um, Accra? If we look at the data, it tends to be disasters. Um, disasters get recorded. If we look at Dar es Salaam, for instance, there's good records of, of, of floods and how many people were killed over the last 20 to 30 years. We have global databases on, 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 on floods that tell us how many people died, not usually in cities, but at least in regions where you can unpick some of the city statistics. Of course, this doesn't pick up many of the small floods. Um, if you look at the careful um, case studies of informal settlements in African cities, you, you, you find there's flooding is, 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 happens every year. Um, many floods that kill one or two people um, don't get recorded. So if we take the official records on floods in cities and we add to them the informal records, um, possibly also through the application of the Desinventar methodology that picks up all the, the local sources on one or two deaths, we get a, a, a picture of, of flood risk in a city. We aggregate all those reports, and we can begin to identify the total contribution to premature death. Or if all the reports are, have a location, you can begin to map um, flood risk and where it's most serious. But what doesn't get recorded? Most of Sub-Saharan Africa no longer have vital registration systems. They no longer have the office of the coroner. 
there is no systematic collection of deaths from um, from premature um, <coughs> premature death. There's no records of serious illness or injury. We get little partial glimpses. Sometimes a hospital will keep records. But, of course, the hospital records are only for those people that went to the hospital for treatment or died at the hospital. So think of Dar es Salaam. It's a city that um, I know a little and have enjoyed visiting over the years. And if you ask many people in the risk business, what are the most serious risks in Dar es Salaam? They'll say flooding. And flooding probably accounts for between 60 and 100 deaths a year, maybe more, but probably not a lot more. 60, 60 um, deaths a year. 5,000 deaths a year come from diarrheal diseases. 6,000 deaths come from acute respiratory infections. Seven to 8,000 deaths come from HIV uh, associated often with, with TB. Malaria is difficult to get statistics, but if you put all the sources together, there's probably thousands of deaths from malaria. Now, these haven't been included in much of the work on risk assessment because there's no reports on which you can base um, the quantification. Of course, these risks vary enormously by informal settlement. Um, in Nairobi, for instance, the under five mortality rate between the worst informal settlement and the, um, the middle-class areas is 30-fold. 30 times more children die before the age of five in the lowest-income areas compared to the highest-income areas. What we've sought to do in Urban Arc is to understand the full spectrum of risk. So it includes disease-causing agents. It includes chemical pollutants. It includes physical hazards. And it goes from the everyday hazards through the small disasters that the Desinventar methodology generally picks up through to the large disasters, and then also factors in likely future disasters um, brought by climate change. From this comes a much stronger information base on how to reduce risk. It sounds a bit obvious, but if you remove a risk that a particular group is vulnerable to, there's no vulnerable group. Infants and young children are very vulnerable to acute respiratory infections, but if there's a quick um, um, response from a medical team, it, they're no longer vulnerable. Um, the enormous um, impact of diarrheal disease on health and on death in informal settlements can be virtually removed with a good water and sanitation and, and solid and liquid waste collection system. However, the most encouraging thing for me is that there's a new source of data on risk, on vulnerability, that goes into a lot of detail and covers all informal settlements. This has been pioneered by the federations of slum dwellers, the federations of shack dwellers that are now active in over 35 nations. In at least 10 nations in sub-Saharan Africa, you have a strong federation of slum dwellers, federation of shack dwellers, sometimes called federation of homeless people, who have looked at the lack of data on informal settlements and who've done these very detailed and careful profiles of each informal settlement, looking at um, um, threat of eviction, water, sanitation, drainage, healthcare, schools, rule of law, um, presence of NGOs, presence of religious groups, relationship with politicians. And that is done for each informal settlement. And we've now got records, and Sky Dobson knows far more about this than I do, and I'm sure she'll give you more details. But these informal settlement profiles have been done in hundreds of cities 
in thousands of informal settlements. And not only does this produce a very rich idea of risk and its underlying causes, but it provides an idea of their priorities. A lot of the profiles spend a lot of time um, asking the community organisations to, to state what their health priorities are and what the health consequences. So I would absolutely agree with, 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 with Mark that here is an information base that provides a new possibility for local governments to work with grassroots organisations and together form, drive and implement new risk reduction agendas. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. And that is indeed the perfect moment to turn to Sky, who is joining us by video link. So Sky Dobson is the director of the Learning Monitoring and Evaluation Unit for the Transnational Slum Dwellers International Network, uh, presently based in the SDI Secretariat in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, she's an urban development professional with, with 10 years' experience working in sub-Saharan African cities. Uh, prior to her current role, she served as Executive Director of Act Together Uganda, the supporting NGO to the National Slum Dwellers Federation of Uganda. Um, Sky, obviously you've been involved in projects across Africa supporting community-driven initiatives to build resilience in Africa's towns and cities. Um, could you maybe give us a few examples of, of how these initiatives are building resilience and, and how they might be scaled up? Sure. Uh, hi, Ari, and hi to everybody in the room and to everybody online. Thank you for allowing uh, SDI to be a part of this important conversation. Um, I, as uh, I was introduced, I'm working uh, for SDI. Uh, David gave us a, a very nice introduction in, in his presentation. We uh, are a transnational network of slum dweller federations. The Slum Dweller Federations are communities organized in informal settlements throughout Africa, uh, Asia, and Latin America. They're organized around savings. They come together in savings groups, women-led savings groups for the most part. Um, these savings groups are networked at the settlement level, slum settlement, then at the city level, then again at the national level to create this critical mass of slum dwellers that are organized um, using tools like the ones that David was explaining to gather information on their settlements and on their cities in order to use this information to start a productive dialogue with government, which is the sort of beginning of this innovative collaborative space um, that Mark was referring to earlier. So throughout Africa now there are 18 Slum Dweller Federations in West, East, and Southern Africa. Um, the, I think there must be now 15 that are doing profiling and enumeration at the city level um, as part of an initiative that we call the Know Your City um, Initiative, which is a partnership between Slum Dwellers International, Cities Alliance, and UCLGA, which is the local government association um, for Africa. So the partnership is, is embedded into this process with communities gathering the data and that um, really serving as the basis for the, the discussion um, around urban poverty, around building resilience that is, is inclusive um, and far more sustainable than that we've, that we've seen to date. So this is, this is the organization. We think that the shift, um, I'm going to give you a few examples uh, from actually just from my time in Uganda. But I think in terms of the shift 
required to to achieve sort of a new level of, of scale in building urban resilience. We think that if there are uh, a billion slum dollars in the world um, at present, if we think of this one billion slum dollars as, as a population to whom resilience needs to be delivered, we'll be really missing an important opportunity to actually catalyze the energies and the efforts of these communities to really be on the front line of, of building resilience and reducing poverty and not the resilience of only the slum settlements, but actually of the city at large when we, when we shift our thinking um, when engaging with urban poor communities. So with that shift, why, why do I, I say that? Why do I say they can be on the front line? Um, I will give an example as, as when I was introduced, you heard that I used to work in Uganda, so let me use that um, as an example. If we think about, uh, say, the city resilience um, index or framework, the one we can all argue about which framework is appropriate or not appropriate, but, but the general idea that uh, resilience is, is multifaceted and that it incorporates issues of health, issues of leadership and strategy, issues of infrastructure and ecosystems and economy and society. I think we can all agree that you know this it's a multi-dimensional approach and we have to think about the uh, the resilience in, in these terms. I think if when we look at that framework just as an example and then try to um, overlay the work of organized communities, we can see very clearly um, how they and their partnerships with local government contribute to each of these dimensions of resilience. Uh, if we look at, say, the leadership and strategy element, if we look at empowered stakeholders, if we look at integrated development planning and effective leadership and management, we see that these slum dweller federations are organized and really um, coming together to not look for a regular savings group might look at the issue of its members, but when these groups are networked at the settlement and city level, then they're starting to look at issues that face the city. Oh, at last. Sorry, I was trying to time myself to be very um, succinct. I just got an alarm. <laughs> um, so the communities are organized, and then it, so this, this empowerment comes from not just participation in, in sort of the agenda of others, but the joint um, collaboration to form an agenda around resilience, and, and this is done through the organizing of the savings and the peer-to-peer -peer exchange and the social cohesion that is, is built up um, when communities organize. If we look at health and well-being, we see the efforts being made by these uh, communities and their, and their partnerships to minimize human vulnerability through incremental upgrading of some settlements. Of course, this has incredible uh, benefits to reducing some of the vulnerabilities and the, the risks that David was mentioning regarding diarrhea and respiratory illness, malaria. Um, so, so we see there a very clear link. We see at on the level of economy and, and society, um, which we see the community support from the from the savings. So communities are, are they have a social safety net that perhaps otherwise wouldn't be there through both their relationships, but also through the savings uh, that they are making, and also then through the dialogue that they're able to have um, with government in terms of, in terms of crisis. Um, in terms of the, the infrastructure and ecosystems, we see communities 
which in situ upgrading is prioritized rather than this urban sprawl and building in a very unsustainable and unaffordable way, um, we see the benefits to the actual functioning of the city at large as a, as a viable sort of um, space. So in, in Uganda, for instance, we have communities organized in 21 um, municipalities. They've done citywide uh, profiling in, in each of those municipalities. So the five um, municipalities within Kampala and then the other secondary cities throughout the country. They have um, MOUs and to engage in city and municipal forums with governments in, in each of those areas. They have minimized or they've been working to minimize um, vulnerability through community-led upgrading projects and jointly managed community upgrading funds at the city and municipal level. Um, they are creating new livelihood opportunities in sustainable and resilient infrastructure and services such as solar energy, clean cooking, biofuel toilets, and all kinds of um, energies used new technologies. And we see commitments being made with government around the formulation of urban renewal plans that are far more inclusive and collaboratively designed uh, with communities. So I think my time is up. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity. I look forward to the discussion. Thank you, Sky, and, and we'll return to some of your points in the discussion. So it's my great pleasure to, to then introduce Matafu Mando, who's a senior lecturer in planning at the Land Management Department in Mazizi University in Malawi and is in London for this week. Is that right? Thank you. Um, so he's a team leader of the Urban Art Research Programme in Karunga Town in Malawi and also founder of the NGO Urban Research and Advocacy Centre based in Mazizu. And his research interests are in urban informality, disaster risk management and urban food security. Um, so, Matafu, it's obviously the small and medium-sized cities in Africa that are experiencing particularly high growth, and your recent research has focused on Karonga Town, which is an urban centre of around an expected 63,000 inhabitants, um, and one which has suffered heavily from flooding and other disasters. What is different about the kind of risk dynamics in smaller and medium-sized uh, towns and cities compared to the larger cities, and how can we better meet their needs into the future? Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Perhaps I should start uh, with what I heard before, that small is beautiful, but <laughs> unfortunately, small towns are all neglected. I think that's the problem I have already. So I don't know what was the wisdom of the, the person who said small is beautiful, when I see that nearly everyone is thinking large is beautiful. So that, that's the starting uh, point of problems of small uh, towns. Um, the politics, the planning, the policy, and the practice, all of them don't think about small towns. The politics don't want the small towns because perhaps they don't live there, but also because they want to benefit from the chaos. There are no gov governance structures. So if there's a chaotic situation, the, the politicians would like to benefit from that one because they know that there are votes. So when there's uh, some disaster occurring in that area, when they go as some kind of savior, then they are seen to be very good. So th they will benefit from the, the situation. And because of that, the risks in these small towns will escalate. And we are talking of the risks, simple risks like uh, poor sanitation, lack of 
access to good water and usually even to drainage systems, they are not there. So these are the challenges of these small uh, cities, small towns, as you may call them. But it's my view that um, although this could be seen as a case they, they are living with, it could also be seen at the same time as a blessing in disguise because being small, their problems are still small. And being small, they are not yet complex. And their population is still small. So there is an opportunity to resolve their problems even now. That's my expectation. Uh, you asked also what can be done. I think that um, because there are no systems presently in all these small centers or where systems exist, they are actually only on paper. It's better to work with the communities. In the case of Malawi, uh, the communities could be, as David was talking about, school, it could be the organized communities. But in some, in some of these centers, there's no organization of the community. They still rely on the customary structures. They still rely on the chiefs. So it is up to us to work uh, with the chiefs to find a mechanism of organizing the communities to, to get our entry point to solve these problems. What we have done in Karonga ourselves was to, to work with the chiefs and to create a structure which exists in the policy but which was not there on the ground. So we had to create the risk management committees. We worked with the chiefs and we worked also with the school leavers to create this platform for data collection and data analysis. I think it is working very well. If this were to be followed in all the other small towns in Malawi, perhaps also elsewhere, it could resolve the major problem of small towns. I think I can stop there, unless there are big questions later. Thank you very much. Thank you, and I'm sure we'll come back to some of these issues and questions. Thank you, Masafi. Um, and finally, um, I'm going to turn to Megan Spires, who joins us online. Um, Megan works as a senior manager responsible for climate change, energy and resilience within the Africa Secretariat of ICLEI, which is the leading global network of over 1,500 cities, towns and regions committed to building a sustainable future. She holds a PhD from Rhodes University and before joining ICLEI, she worked as a climate protection scientist um, in the city of Durban in South Africa. So Megan, you've worked both as a government official, now for an intergovernmental network, as well as on kind of numerous related research projects. Um, I wanted to shift the focus a little away, perhaps from community and local government, upwards to big new international agreements, such as the Sendai Framework, the Paris Agreement, the Sustainable Development Goals, the corollary of the new urban agenda. What does this mean for local governments who need to build resilience in the future in Africa? And, and indeed, are these agreements influencing the ways in which urban actors in the region are planning for the future? Thanks. Um, yeah, thanks for having me. I think... Um, First and foremost, it's important to note that all of these agreements most definitely are, like never before, acknowledging cities. Um, cities and towns are being both um, causing a lot of the global challenges that we're facing, but also um, are almost incubators of solutions. And I think that's been uh, decades of advocacy work that ICLE and other organizations have done to indicate why cities and towns are absolutely vital in the achievements of any global agreement or any global agenda. All of these agreements, and some of them you've mentioned, they're, they're landmark agreements, and we welcome them. 
Um, and, and with them has come a whole bunch of different uh, documents, uh, reporting mechanisms, uh, addendums, and we hope additional finance. And a lot of our motivation now is how do we get the finance down to the city so they're actually able to work towards these global agreements. But also our response from uh, African cities that we're working with across sub-Saharan Africa is a sense of feeling overwhelmed by uh, these various agreements and asking uh, ICLEI and I'm sure others, many of, of which are probably present in London and listening online, what do these agreements mean for us and how do we begin moving towards the implementation? And particularly in Africa, um, and it's been alluded to already, the severe resource constraints, both human resources and financial resources, and the difficulty of taking on additional agenda items. And I think it's important that uh, we, we better understand and unpack how these global agreements can be used by cities to do their jobs better, as opposed to it being an additional drain on, on resources, on time and capacity. When just reflecting uh, a bit yesterday on these various global agreements and what for us as ICLEI are some of the, the, key, uh, the key binding points, the key trends, uh, one for us is around, a lot of them are speaking about transformation speaking about business unusual, or speaking about a new normal, and trying to unpack what actually these terms, resilience, transformation, mean in reality. I think that's something we really need to grapple with. If we're going to use them in the global discourse, what does it mean for a city? And, and many are asking us, well, point to a resilient city or point to a sustainable city. Um, and, and what do you really mean by transformation? And I think that's the challenge we face because what we're doing doesn't have a precedent and we're working in an unprecedented space. So I think issues around language and around making uh, the discourse a reality on the ground is important. The second uh, for us is around informality. And I think uh, there's others on the, on the panel better qualified than myself to speak about informality and the importance of it, particularly in Africa. But for us, it's, it's about saying that uh, informality is part and parcel of, of, of African cities. It's not, it's not going away anytime soon. But in fact, can we, can we harness um, existing structures within informal networks? Can we harness the solutions that are, are bottom-up, homegrown solutions being derived in these informal settlements to, to bring about a better world? The third uh, one for us is around... Uh, a lot of talk about prevention and proactive action. And, uh, you know, in reflecting when David was speaking about, think of an African city that you know well, you know, when you reflect on the realities of an African city, I think one of the most difficult jobs in the world is being an African mayor or an African town clerk or an African city practitioner, because the challenges are, are vast, they're complex, uh, they're immediate, and many of them are day to day. And we're actually asking these practitioners now to not only deal with quite intrinsic, uh, difficult challenges on a day-to-day -day basis, but also be preventative and be proactive. Um, and, how do we, and how do we do this? And how do we allow these two sometimes competing uh, realities to be traded off? So for us, it's about putting solutions in place that are good for today, that have ancillary benefits, that are good from a socioeconomic perspective, that's attractive to a mayor because will lead to him or her being voted in again, but also with the lens of the fact that it's robust for the future, that it's taking into account increasing disaster risk, that it's taking into account things like climate change. And then lastly, um, and I think 
this is an important realm within a lot of work of which ICI does with trying to link researchers better with local government stakeholders is a lot of these agreements are calling for more integrative, inclusive, transdisciplinary processes. But we know that transdisciplinarity, uh, co-production of information is slow and is challenging and it's extremely time and resource intensive. So it's, it's trying to balance the fact that we need to understand context particularly well and understanding context takes time. And the fact that building relationships that lead to transdisciplinary work is resource intensive, but knowing that it's absolutely vital. And I think it's also this, uh, this debate around this constant call for immediate action, um, cross-scale action of up and out scaling, when in fact, in many senses, we need deep scaling. We need to understand cities in depth to be able to cause uh, long-term change. So I think these... In summary, these global agreements are, are wonderful. They're landmark. Um, they have improved on many of their predecessors. And I think all of us as organizations need to be thinking more effectively around how we take these global agreements, make them a reality in city, and make them not feel like they're an additional burden, but actually assist city practitioners to do their jobs better. Thank you, Megan. Um, we're going to move for probably about 10 minutes just to have a discussion between the panellists before we open up to the floor. Um, Matafa, I'd like to start by asking you this question that Megan raised about informality. Um, what for you is emerging as, as kind of critical solutions? Is this about bottom-up homegrown solutions in informal areas, working with formal and informal institutions? Where, where are the critical emergent solutions for informal areas? Thank you very much. And the, the, the biggest problem is in Africa, including Malawi, the, the, the informal community constitutes about 60% of the population. But in the small centers, near everyone is informal, unfortunately. Everybody is informal. So to start finding solutions to, to that, you have to work with the people who are living in informal settlements because even using the democracy, they are the, they are the owners of the city. So the critical area to me is to work with the ones that are most affected by any risks, and they constitute the majority. So it's the people in the informal settlements. Unfortunately, it's the other way around. That's why most of the time we see uh, demonstrations, people are getting frustrated because they are excluded. So the critical point is how to include the majority of the people in these settlements. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and also, um, David and Mark, I'd like to ask you to comment a little bit on Megan's point about how do we think for the long term? I mean, obviously, this goes against the grain of kind of projects and political cycles, but also in terms of underlying research versus the demands for immediate solutions. Um, and is it right that we should be pressing local governments to think in terms of long term when they face such pressing immediate needs? David, do you want to kick off, Mark? Come in. Well, if, if, if we look at innovative cities, cities where you've had an innovative um, mayor and um, city council with a strong commitment to social justice, and they've done good development, and they've done water, and they've done sanitation, and they, they've improved health care. And they've been having problems with flooding, so they, mo they moved to work at a regional level. And all this is rooted in development. And of course, that is also building the basis for disaster risk reduction. 
and for climate change adaptation. In a sense, climate change adaptation, disaster risk reduction and development are all concerned with re reducing risk. They just choose to focus on a different set of risks, but all of them are committed to reducing risk. And what I've seen is, in this mainly in Latin America, where outstanding mayors who've done development well and done disaster risk reduction well and begun to do adaptation well because they can see how it fits with disaster <coughs> risk reduction are also just beginning to think, okay, how do we, how do we move all of this into a low-carbon future? So I, I, there's, there's so many overlaps between the four critical agendas, development, disaster risk reduction, climate change adaptation, and climate change mitigation. And good mayors and good political systems are finding ways to actually reconcile the four. Thanks. Um, so I'd, I'd only add to that the, the power of visioning um, and pick up from, from Megan's comment about uh, that, that we are working in a space where there are no presidents. So it is difficult to think of a sustainable city or a resilient city or to understand transformation. Um, and that's because these are very difficult things to attain and there are structures both economic, physical, but also in imagination that have made these things very difficult. Visioning tends to be something that's, I think at the moment, still marginalized within perhaps a scenario workshop and then is brought to an artifact in a research project. But where I see visioning connected to action, it enables decision makers to think about what an alternative future might look like and then feel a commitment towards the incremental steps that might be taken to move towards it. Recognizing one might never get there, but that it is still the, the purpose of development to reach towards these unattainable goals and recognize that challenge. So the, the one word I think is, is, is visioning for me and bringing that much further up, up the agenda, which connects to this, the sort of the, the democratic deficit conversation that we've started to open up as well, recognizing there are lots of visions in the city um, and that these should all be brought to the table. It's, it's not easy where we've done this, um, in cities, we've, we've worked with decision makers at city level and it's been very apparent that the vision they have for the city as perhaps technocrats is quite difficult, sorry, different to the vision of cities held by the political class and indeed that those differences are moving further apart so that the power that the technical class, the administrators have to affect change in the city seems to be diminishing. Sky, I'd like to kind of come back to you and pick up on this point about democratic deficits. I think there seems to be an emerging consensus that there's a lot of potential in organized communities and kind of grassroots upward initiatives. And you've talked about kind of connecting in partnership with local governments. But what where local governments simply don't have the capacity, the mandate, or even the will to provide basic services, what can other actors do without undermining the need to build a functioning public authority? Is Sky there? Uh, thank you yeah. very much. Um, I think the example that's springing to mind um, for me is actually in a secondary city, so perhaps uh, relevant to some of the points Metaphor was making. Um, and also, I think, helps to highlight the challenge that Megan uh, raised with regard to the expensive sort of the, the, the assumption that the collaborative processes can be very expensive. I think. In Jinja, through the establishment of a community upgrading fund, there was 
the local meetings between slum dwellers and the municipal council, and there we don't have to invest a lot of money. We have to be able to just support the local government to convene those spaces. And then if we're able to catalyze community action through simple tools like a community upgrading fund where communities can make these incremental changes, the demands actually um, for the management of that process are quite small. It was it was really quite remarkable to see. And the communities built toilets using community contracting, so you're um, building skills and livelihoods and also incrementally upgrading um, um, the, the settlements and improving access to services. Uh, I think it was a really positive uh, experience and one that could be explored uh, for for exactly the purpose that you, that you that you raised. Thank you, Sky. And um, just bringing Megan back in as well. Megan, obviously, some of Urban Arc and, and our work has been more focused on working with disaster risk practitioners. But what can we expect of them in terms of addressing the much broader issues of land use, governance, service delivery? What role can disaster risk managers uh, play in building broader resilience? Yeah, I think um, I think as disaster risk managers, it's it's planners. Um, it's, it's various different levels in a city that have to play an important role in, in dealing with all of these challenges we've been speaking about. Um, I, th I think our main lesson has been that it's about relationships, that it's about building exceptionally good relationships. And where in our experience we've seen the biggest success, the quickest and the most long-term in cities, is there's actually been sometimes a completely shadow network or an informal network of city stakeholders that work well together. That doesn't need to be institutionalized. They don't need to be mandated to talk to each other. But they often speak to each other because, one, there's, there's some binding issue that all of them find important, whatever it is, climate change, disaster risk, uh, informality is a challenge in the city. And then, two, they... Um, they have a trust relationship, and it's often at the middle management level where they're able to make decisions. They have power to make decisions and budget to make decisions, but they also are able to liaise fairly easily with the upper kilians of, of the municipality, the mayors and the city managers or town clerks. So I think fundamental to any, to any change, to any shift in the way African cities in particular go about dealing with these challenges we've, we've been speaking about is building those relationships in an effective way. And it's key between uh, researchers and, and the practitioners, and I would say um, absolutely the same between community members and local governments. There isn't a one-size-fit-all mechanism that I think we, we might be looking for to try and get these various sectors of society to work more effectively together I think what we need to be doing is be building good champions in the municipalities and capacitating them during a project time frame so that they're there beyond to continue that agenda and then helping those individuals form effective partnerships to make changes in the long term. So I think the, the overarching message, at least from our side, is that building those relationships is probably the, the one lasting legacy one can leave in a city. Thank you, Megan. And just before we move to open for questions, David, a final one for you, an emergent suggestion that resilience, does it help us or hinder us without getting bogged down in terminologies? Is it a, a drag and something that's complex to implement, 
for local planners or is it helping us to understand uh, the way risks are produced in the interaction of different systems and scales in ways that are more helpful? Um, I mean, the trouble is um, resilience has joined sustainable development in the word that's most overused in international um, international um, the new urban agenda for instance or the sustainable development goals um, the word sustainable got mentioned I think 114 times in the new urban agenda resilience was 33 and it, it, it loses its meaning at this point because everything has to be resilient uh, you know e economic growth has to be resilient um, um, transport has to be resilient healthcare has to be resilient it's sad because the, the original concept um, was useful. It was an understanding that you, you, you can build a capacity to cope with change and to cope with, with extremes that haven't happened before um, in advance. So it's a fundamental part of disaster risk reduction. Um, I also reflect on, you know, I'm very resilient to climate change. I'm very proud to say this. Um, I have a house that meets building regulations. I have good quality water sanitation and drainage. I have insurance for my house. I have insurance um, for the possessions. I have a healthcare centre of 50 hours, which I can walk into any time I like. Um, I have emergency services that will warn me. Now, these are all fundamental bits of resilience. And of course, none of this resilience that I have came from thinking about climate change. It was from the risk reduction inherent in a democratic, successful city. So there's the, the process by which we can drive a risk reduction to everyday hazards has the basis to provide the underpinnings for resilience to more extreme events or um, unanticipated events. And I think it's really important to see it in those terms, not something that's only done for disaster risk or for climate change. Thank you, David. And on that reflection, I'm going to open for questions and comments. I'm going to start in the room and then move to our online audience. So. I'm going to take them in groups of three, and if you could please state your name and organisation and obviously keep your questions and comments as brief as possible so we can get as many perspectives as possible. Um, so first three from the room, I'll start over that side. So two gentlemen at the front and then the lady here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name's John Gibb, um, and um, I used to work in development. I'm retired now. Uh, so just two... First of all, thank you very much. Very interesting, and you've got a really good array of people here today. Um, I actually started out as an urban geographer many years ago. Um, first of all, just a comment about community, because one of the last jobs I did was a lot on polio eradication and working on neglected tropical diseases. And there was a big emphasis on the role of the community. But when, when you talk about this, are you talking about dereliction of duty by government and substituting for government on a community who are already very, very heavily pressed? So it's okay, it might be all right as a halfway house, but it certainly shouldn't be a substitute for the responsibilities of the state. The second thing I would say is, there seems to be an awful lot of talk, and I'm afraid it looks sounds like reinventing the wheel. There are existing models all over the world of 
of, of urban systems and urban processes, which we have to copy. I don't think we have to do an awful lot more research. It's all been done before. Go back to, I don't know, 18th century London or something like this and, and the, the putting in of water and sanitation and John Snow and all that sort of thing. Um, but my question is, um, out of all this work, who's costing it and who's going to pay for it and who's going to raise the money? Uh, to me, clean water and sanitation is probably the most fundamental thing that the world needs today, but I don't really see much progress happening. Thanks. Thank you. Um, I think there was... Actually, we'll, we'll take the gentleman and then the lady at the back, and then I'll come back to this side of the room, if that's OK. Well, thank you. I'm Hugh Wendland-Smith. Uh, a long time ago, I was an ODI fellow in Zambia. Um, I now an independent researcher with an interest in urbanisation. Um, the point I'd like to pick up is, in the background papers... Um, a, a persistent theme is the weakness of urban administrations, particularly <clears throat> the smaller ones. Um, I know Africa better than other parts of the world. There may be better examples in Latin America. But does the panel, or does anyone, have a prescription for how to strengthen urban administrations in smaller towns, for example, in Africa, uh, that can be uh, more generally applied because at the moment they're all very weak. And related to that, what is the right division of labour between uh, urban administrations whose capacity is bound to be limited and the community-type organisations we've been hearing about whose work sounds uh, rather inspiring but often cannot be productive without some kind of government structure that it can relate to? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The lady at the back. Thank you. Um, so I'm Yamasi Bokini, I'm a doctor by training, working on public health in urban African cities. Um, my question, just out of curiosity, actually, I think Mark <laughs> mentioned um, something about the differences between the visions of the technocrats and the political classes are growing further apart in terms of what the city should should look like. Um, I'd just like to know, like, what what are the core points of tension, and and why why are the visions sort of pulling further apart? Thank you. Um, Mark, do you want to start on that one? And I was also going to bring to you the, the question, which I know you didn't phrase an explicit question, but has all the research really been done before? Urban Arc seems best place to answer that. Thanks. Yeah. So, so on vision, particularly just in our project, but I guess it would be interesting to look more broadly. We worked in New York, London, um, Lagos, Kolkata and Tokyo. And in all of those cities, there was a tension between development vision um, well, so we asked people to describe uh, the, the core trajectory of development as they saw it, how, whatever that might mean to them. And then we, we went through in quite detail what adaptation and maladaptation might look under different aspects of development. <coughs> so the development tension for very, very broadly across those cities uh, seemed to be between a more a uh, public collective vision of development and a more private individualized version of development, including London. So here it was very much about the role of uh, the state, welfare state, and uh, an emergent sort of private sector approach to risk risk management, as we've seen very recently, you know, with the, with the, the fire event in London as an outcome of the privatization of the management and also a reduced capacity and the ability of emergency services to respond. Uh, not the immediate event, but in the aftermath in terms of people's accommodation and so on. Um, 
in placing where, where so decision makers would, would suggest that they were, say, in, in London, uh, broadly to the privatised side of that continua, but wanting to be slightly more on the welfare state side of that continua. But recognising then that the trajectory of change driven by policymakers was much more towards the privatised side. So there was, a, first of all, a desire to move the relationship between risk management and development, in the case of London, but in different flavours replicated across all the cities, towards the public sector. But rec that of itself was a challenge, but recognising the overall movement in development was actually in the opposite direction, more towards private responsibility. So not, not to say that one was overwhelmingly better or worse, but there was certainly this growing difference in the visions of the technical classes. So we worked with local authorities and city municipal actors across all these cities and the, and the more political class. So sorry, I know that was a bit of a, a detailed answer. Um, and in terms of science, yeah, well, it's a question we constantly ask ourselves, I think. And there are, I think there'd be at least two, two ways where I feel the science has contributed, at least in urban arc. One is that, that data is power, and I think, as SDI has shown, really strongly. And uh, one, yes, so, so collaborating, it doesn't have to be science universities that generate data and present that to those in positions of power, but certainly data is power. Um, with that comes knowledge and understanding. Cities, of course, are constantly evolving. And yes, it will be the same sorts of dynamics. It will be expressions of poverty. It'll be environmental change. It'll be technological change, changes in governance. But we do need to keep track of the relationships, I would say, between those different elements. And then a space where science is perhaps less uh, positioned, and there's a good deal of learning from our side to do, is the role of science as a language that can convene relationships. So it can be a neutral space. It can be a language that can bring the richer and the poorer, the formal and the informal together. And we've seen this in Nairobi, and there are some colleagues in the room that can talk to it more than myself. Um, but by working with informal settlements, uh, enabling self-assessment of risk, there is a language there of science, of monitoring flood, of monitoring vulnerability, that can be brought into conversations with large corporate uh, development, mall development and the like, that wasn't there before. So the mall development that might change water courses, lead to flood risk, all other sorts of implications. In the past, there may have been some cursory consultation. Now that same process might unfold, but those being affected have a new language with which to speak and a language that brings a bit more voice to their underlying values. Thanks. Thanks, Mark. Um, and Sky and Megan, I, I, Sky, I'll take you first. I just wondered if you could answer this this point. Are are we pushing down responsibilities to communities, and should we be investing in building up local government capacity? And if so, how? And also, Megan, I don't know if you have any comment on well, what are the costs, and and who's going to pay? And obviously, there's also a normative question there about well, well who should pay? Um, Sky, do you want to start? Sure, thank you. Uh, I, I think, yes, I'd like, like to pick up on, on that question and, and also relate it to the, the second question. So the idea that um, the work of the communities is, is a substitute for the state, that's something we really work to ensure that that's, that's not the aim at all, but that, in fact, the state becomes uh, more accountable to and, and invests more in combating uh, inequality and, and exclusion in cities. 
So, for instance, with, with something like a community upgrading fund, there will be a contribution from the state. Sometimes um, in under-resourced states, we have even begun from a point uh, where the state or the city was asked to give land for the upgrading projects and then donor contribution for the, um, the infrastructure and a community contribution of their savings to the project as well. So we're trying to blend um, everybody's contribution and to influence through these sort of precedent-setting um, projects, decisions that are made moving forward about service provision, land tenure, and, and housing uh, in informal settlements. So an, ex- an example, and especially that's coming up quite um a lot in the in the climate change adaptation and resilience uh, work at the moment is around eviction. So we've got a lot of cities that think that okay, we need to clear this wetland, or we need to get people out of the flood zone on the coast, or we need to move people from um, sensitive infrastructure. So if there's no dialogue there, if there's no sense that communities should have a voice um, in the planning of their city, the borders is normally the first the first option to, to, to get those people out of that area. We've seen horrific sort of um, evictions in, in Lagos of late for these reasons, and the point of the organizing, and there was a victory actually the day before yesterday um, in Lagos, where because of this pressure from communities and because of the international pressure that the network is able to bring to bear, um, a decision is then taken by the, in this case, the governor's office that resettlement, um, a negotiated resettlement um, is required and forced evictions will not be tolerated. So our, our starting point is to make um, states take on more responsibility and, and be more responsive to to the the needs of their majority population, which often is in informal settlements, but also that the people in informal settlements also take up um, their responsibilities and and have a stake in the conversation. Um, so so for the second question second person who asked the question was talking about how to make these productive. And it's really important that we don't just have sort of um, ceremonial participatory development spaces. And I think um, Megan's point is sometimes communities uh, and local governments are very sort of tired of yes, new frameworks and new new ideas and concepts that have to be reflected upon in workshops, but sometimes it's just the, it's the ongoing dialogue um, is there. It doesn't matter whether the label is resilience or climate change or poverty reduction. Is much more action that is is um, is likely. Thank you. Thanks, Guy. Um, Megan, I don't know if you'd like to comment quickly. I know David would like to say something about the the costs after you. So, sure. I mean, with regards to who's costing it, we know that various organisations have done so. Really, even put out amounts of how much dealing with some of these challenges are going to cost. Who's going to pay for it? I think there's no one source. I think it needs to come from multiple avenues. But for us, the the ultimate um, the ultimate representation of something having been built into by a city and having the value seen by a city is when 
eventually the city by its own mechanisms funds a particular project or program. Um, and we have seen some successful examples where um, an external funder, uh, say Danida or CEDA, one of these big development agencies, funds a pilot project in an African city over a period of time. We work intensely with that city in understanding what the benefits are, both socioeconomic, both present and future, uh, both from an environmental perspective too, and then seeing the city eventually funding it using its own existing municipal budget or, or more innovative funding mechanisms. And I think um, for us, it, it, we need to be looking at, at various funding uh, options, but when a, an African city is able to use uh, funding that it has access to or innovative funding mechanisms to really embed a particular project or program, that's the ultimate, for me, that's the ultimate way in which we can see sustainability in the future. Thank you, Megan. Uh, David, you wanted to comment on the costs and payments issue. Well, the thing that astonishes me is people have been saying that water and sanitation is important, but the funding hasn't gone there. 1976, the UN Conference Human Settlements. We commit to guarantee that everyone gets good water and sanitation by 1990, or as soon after as possible. 1977, a special conference in Chile committed to universal provision for water and sanitation. The 1980s, the International Drinking Water and Sanitation Decade. And a lot of blah, blah, blah. If you look at the amount of money that goes to big water and sanitation in cities, it's tiny. And what I don't get is that many of the bilateral agencies have difficulty spending their capital. And yet here is a large capital investment with phenomenal health returns that delivers over 50 to 100 years. I, I don't get it. In Latin America, what you've seen is that strong democracy, um, mayors elected for the first time, have produced all sorts of solutions to water and sanitation, almost universal provision. But then, of course, the municipal budgets are 50 to um, 100 times more per person than most sub-Saharan African nations. So it's the international agencies have got to commit to water and sanitation. And it's not in these little tiny projects. You go to most informal settlements now, and there's a two-seater two toilet here funded by three international agencies, and another three-seater toilet there. And there's, you need citywide systems for water, and you need citywide systems for sewers and for drains and for excreta removal. <laughs> Just the, my final whinge. It's a wonderful chance to have a, a good whinge. Huge sums are being proposed for climate funds, the Global Climate Fund, for instance. Now, will they see a good piped water, sewer, drain, solid waste collection and management system as absolutely critical for climate change adaptation and fund it, or will they see that that's development and they're not going to touch it? I'm very worried that it's going to be the latter. Thank you, David. Um, we're going to move to our online questions. Matafu, I, I have a couple for you to start off with. Um, this is from Amiera Sarwas, who's at the Swedish International Peace Research Institute in Stockholm. And I, she would like to ask you a bit more about the role of informal actors in filling public service gaps. Um, is it possible to fill these gaps uh, through the actions of informal actors? And are there security issues as a result of informal versus formal governance? Um, so do you want to take those questions, Matafu, and then I'll, I'll put out some of the online questions for the wider speakers. Thank you very much. Uh, what is regarded as informal is only in relation to the government systems. But as soon as the government recognizes that these are the people living in this city, they no longer become informal. So that's my simple answer to that question. It's a question of the government recognizing that 
These people who are regarded as informal are part of the city. As soon as we just recognize that they are part of the city, the informality ends there. The next stage is to work together to improve the systems. That's my answer. Thank you. Thank you, Matafu. And I've got three broader questions for the, for the whole team. Um, one is about investment and the private sector. So from Catherine Allison at Future Earth Limited, what new tools and structures are needed um, for communities to be able to provide robust bottom line evidence on how improved resilience positively affects the urban triple bottom line? Um, so what kind of new tools and structures will serve to attract inward investment at the scale required? Um, and a question from Kate Armstrong at McKinsey and Company. What do you see as the role for the private sector in building these types of urban resilience in sub-Saharan Africa? Um, so perhaps uh, Sky, Megan, David, Mark, maybe a, a quick comment if you'd like on those issues. Uh, do you want to start, Megan? Yeah, I mean, maybe on the, on the private sector, please uh, be trying to work more and more with the private sector in the realm of sustainability. And I have to say, you know, our experience has been that it is a it is a challenge in some respects to bring the the public sector's worldviews and the public sector's agendas closer together with the private sector and what motivates them. Um, one example of how we how we try to bring them closer together, as an example, is we host a, a resilience conference every year in Bonn, and we've had it, this last one in in May this year, an entire stream of the conference running with some of the top insurers and reinsurers coming to speak to us. At around what motivates both what they invest in, but also what motivates how they insure cities and what they insure and how they can ensure more resilient infrastructure. And what became very apparent was very different languages being spoken and the difficulty in the city practitioners understanding the private sector individuals and the other way around. Um, and so I think a lot of work there needs to be done on, on both sides to better understand the motivations and how the, the private sector functions in comparison to a public sector uh, with you know, regard to public good and what motivates private sector investments for us to see that collaboration happen more effectively. So I think there's still a lot of work to be done to get the private sector and the public sector to work more effectively to create more, more resilient cities but I think it's a growing area and one that will more and more become become important. Thanks, Megan. Uh, Sky, do you maybe want to address this question about what uh, data really as well that communities can provide that will serve to attract inward investment at the scale required? What new tools and structures are needed? Yeah, I think this is definitely an area that SCI recognizes it needs to um, place more attention in, in understanding. We are being encouraged to think of the private sector um, not just as a source of funding for, for a project, um, but to yeah, be definitely become more of a partner in, sh in shaping how investments are made. So through the data collection that we do at, at City we understand that there might, well, there like there are going to be possibilities to sort of de-risk investment in informal settlements by really understanding the situation, but also having an organised community that's part of the um, investment decision making and and even management. So these are these are areas that we are really committed to understanding better, to forging partnerships that can make. Uh, 
use of some of the innovations around markets for good and and innovative finance. And I think for sure it's something that we we don't understand fully and but are fully committed to to working on um, with increased intensity in the coming year. Thanks, Guy. Um, I'm going to move to a final block of questions, kind of starting on this side of the room. Um, uh, two ladies here, and did I see a hand up around there? <laughs> if not, we'll go back over that side as well, and a gentleman at the back. Hi, I'm Laurie Gehring from the Thompson Reuters Foundation. I'm, I'm curious about this um, thing that, that Megan was talking about, about how you can take a pilot project and then embed that that works. I'd be really curious to hear some examples that she has or others have where that's actually worked, where something's come from outside and then been taken on board and owned. Hi, it's Linda Baer. I work for International Development Research Centre in Canada and I'm doing my DPhil in Urban Resilience at Oxford. Uh, yeah, thank you. I think it's been great to hear and thank you, David, for the uh, the, um, your comments about resilience, I think it does open up some cool spaces, but it, it do, is not well understood. So it's sad <laughs> to see those spaces lost. Uh, some of the words, that, and it comes from uh, more of an operational background. So I've worked with UNICEF for years in sort of violent responses and then up in Nepal of in sort of just before the earthquake was happening, assessing some of the DRR. Um, a few word, words I haven't heard too much yet is the issues around violence. So if you asked a, a um, mayor <laughs> what are their big issues, and sometimes they're grappling with some of the non-infrastructure issues that, um, you know, and how to address them, um, you know, gang rape. In, in some of the slum areas. And, and I guess migration would be the other big word that I'd say is, you know, how, how to, with the refugee flows that are going on, how do cities where they're not even having a clear mandate, but yet having the presence of um, people, <laughs> you know, that are there, um, deal with them in a more positive way, I guess you could say. I'm glad, Mark, that you brought up the issue around um, the fire here because the secondary response was a, a key thing and I, I would probably say one from more being operational in some of the emergency responses what I've seen is a gap and maybe it'd be good to get your comments on is that there's not maybe the appreciation for the role of different parts of the response so sometimes you'll get the governor's piece which is on the weak side what you were saying um, but the civil society piece is maybe disjointed or there to some, and the strength of that is really good when, when it's there. But sometimes the humanitarian response that comes in, uh, it's, it's funny that they're not always speaking to each other. And I think that was very, very stark in Nepal, is seeing you know, really well-developed DRR at sort of an operational level, but when the government actually can't respond sometimes either in violence or if they're also affected by the catastrophe, is you know where are the where is that sort of the the connection between some of those responses, um, and uh, just a final one about where you're seeing the role of decentralization uh, in a positive way, <laughs> Megan. Maybe that goes to you. Is where you've seen some good examples of decentralized planning around DRR and uh, resilience. Thanks. Thanks. A lot of questions embedded in there, but um, just to the gentleman at the back, finally. Thank you. 
good afternoon. Uh, my name is Judy Warren. I'm from the Defence Cultural Specialist Unit. Um, my first question has actually just been asked by the, the lady from there, or at least um, in and around that. So I'll, I'll rephrase it uh, um, whilst I give my second question, which is um, related to the tension which has been alluded to between the political and the technocratic. Um, my experience of, of, of African political leaders at, at all levels, but particularly at the, at the uh, lower levels, is that uh, leadership is purely a patronage network. And using... Um, and political power, you know, as a mayor or whatever it is, you know, you use that to fill departments with your followers' uh, political um, 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 political associates, etc. So my my query is um, rather than a lot of these plans are really great, but they're not going to happen simply because there's no benefit to a politician implementing all these things when he's trying to you know, uh, feed his patronage network. So wouldn't a, a better approach, or, or has there been any approach that looks more at strengthening democracy and accountability as an incentive to these political actors to uh, at least sustain or at least reinforce, or at best leave the technocrats alone to do what they're doing rather than looking for funds and pumping more money into them so that they can steal it, as it were. But on the next question, which related to... Um, the, the drift towards urbanization, particularly in Africa, most of it's been economic, and it's been poorly managed, in, again, in my experience, it's been very poorly managed, no infrastructure's been put in place, and then now there's a new dynamic of migration through um, either climate or, or conflict, so I'm thinking of Medugri in uh, northern Nigeria, Eastleigh in Nairobi. So uh, the question I, I've got is that this changes not only the cultural dynamic of those, uh, of those areas, as in it, it, it can displace certain ethnic groups or make certain ethnic groups stronger, and also, it changes the planning nature, as in you, you've now got unplanned structures that you've, you've put in place. Um, how exactly can you model this, and how exactly can you plan for this um, in the context of where you're looking at in terms of resilience and then balancing the risks or developing resilience in that maybe you don't want those populations to be permanent, but uh, you still have to cater for them? Thank you. Thank you. Um, a lot of embedded questions. Um, Perhaps if we go through the speakers and you pick up on, on some of the points uh, that it feels uh, kind of most appropriate to answer. David, should we start with you? One of the things I've tried to do over the last 30 years is to spend time in informal settlements and to watch and to listen. And very often it's in response to a particular initiative. The women's savings groups in India um, were horrified by the level of crime in their informal settlement and the police never came in. So they formed their own committee, seven women, three men, and they provided the policing themselves. But they negotiated with the police so that the police provided them with two officers that were permanently in the settlement who were known to the whole community, so they were accountable to them. And what you've seen is these police panchayats very successfully reducing crime and violence and risk. Now, there's, there's a bigger story to be told because you go in to look at the police panchayats and then you hear all the other ways that community organizations, especially women-led community organizations based around savings groups, are doing lots of things, um, making sure that people get access to the community toilets without, um, without risk to themselves. Um, they were In the settlement I was at recently, they were closing down the illegal alcohol stills because this was such an, uh, an important part of drunkenness and violence against women. But by being very pragmatic, they not only closed down the illegal uh, dens, they gave the proprietors uh, a loan to develop an alternative livelihood away from alcoholism. 
it's also through communities that we go to scale. We get the, the question about going to scale. There's been lots of pilot projects that have gone to scale. There was a pilot project in 1992 in Mumbai to see where the communities could design, build, and manage toilets. And they could. A million and a half people in Mumbai now use toilets designed, built, and managed by community organizations. In Nairobi, no, sorry, in Kenya, the, the Mungano, the Homeless People's Federation of, of Kenya, um, have built 7,000 houses with a small loan fund managed by a, a local fund. Um, the Community Organizations Development Institute in Thailand started with a small support program to women's savings groups, and there's 500,000 people have benefited from their loans to build new homes, to secure tenure in their, their settlement, and to get in infrastructure. Um, the Ukrangi Pilot Project started as a pilot project. Two million people in urban areas in Karachi now benefit from some of the best quality sewers and storm drains in Asia, all done by the community. But in all these instances, the community is always looking to government to help. You can do the small pipes as a community. You can put in all the pipes that take away the sewage or bring in the water for your community. You can't do the big stuff. So they negotiated with government to do the big pipes. So again, you've got this community local government dynamic, which is what gives you the chance to go to scale and to really go to scale. And we've got enough examples to know this isn't just one or two um, initiatives. Thank you, David. Um, Megan, I don't know if you could also comment on positive examples of decentralisation where this has empowered uh, local governments to be able to take appropriate responses. Yeah, I mean, I was going to comment a little bit more on the, um, on the pilot project aspect. I mean, I think that the key thing is that it shouldn't be seen as external actors coming into a city and imposing solutions or imposing a project. Um, it's only effective and it only goes from being a pilot project to rolled out and upscaled when it's co-produced, uh, when it's, it's city stakeholders saying what they need and organisations and donors working with them to achieve that. Will that pilot project likely then be funded by the municipality going forward? Um, a nice, you know, easy example from Exequini Municipality Durban is the is the Buffalo Drive Community Reforestation Project, which the city uh, now part funds. Um, so I think the, the key thing around uh, upscaling and upscaling and funders is, is about attitude. Um, and the funders that we work with where we find the most success are those that are uh, and external agents, those that are humble, that recognize that African city stakeholders know their cities best and we should be listening to them more than imposing solutions on them. And also a flexibility in how funding is dispersed and how work plans are calculated, etc., because of the dynamic and, and resource constraints and environments in, in African cities. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's that, that in a sense is a form of decentralization is when the solutions are, are not top down, they're bottom up, and that sounds cliche, but they only work when they're responding specifically to city needs and community needs. Thanks, Megan. Um, and maybe Sky um, Matafu, uh, Mark as well, just to comment a little bit on these questions bubbling up about politics, 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 Patriots net networks, um, how to build accountability and it, that its role um, in promoting resilience. Do you want to start a tough comment in, from Malawi? Yeah. Just to comment, um, in relation to the other questions, there was a, a, a big question on prescribing 
Someone said, can we prescribe something, some solution? I think it's, 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 it's very difficult to, to, to prescribe because cities are, uh, are very complex and there's a lot of transformation. So the solution should, should not be to prescribe, but just some tools, uh, some suggestions which can work one time and then next time you have another uh, suggestion which could help to solve a specific problem. So we should not be looking at the prescriptions, but something that will work for a specific time, for a specific city, a specific community. I think that is how we should be looking at it. In doing that, we could be solving the challenges related to funding, the challenges related to decentralization, and all those things, especially if we involve the community uh, in finding solutions, but also in implementing projects, however small they may be, construction of toilets, maybe of bigger projects as well. They should be part of the, the process of doing that, of finding the solutions. Because if we, we neglect them, we are in fact overburdening ourselves. So I wanted to say earlier that um, if we do something with the community, we should also look at it as part of the funding because it's, they're, doing, they're taking a role which the, the government or the city should have themselves financed. But that task is done by the community. So in other words, they are subsidizing the city. The communities are subsidizing the city because it's the, the mayor and his councillors who have the responsibility to provide services. So here we see the communities coming forward that we can do certain things for ourselves. And these are things for which these people are employed. And these are the things the mayor and his friends are paid for. But the community is saying we will do it ourselves. So we should instead thank them for doing that. I thank you. Thank you, Matafu. Sky, I don't know whether you want to comment further on, on the question of kind of informal political relationships and, and how we move to more accountable and, and democratic relationships between civil society and state. Uh, sure. I think that the, for SDI, this process starts in the, in the savings group. And um, I think the, the comment about visioning by Mark earlier, this is, this is sort of where it starts. You're starting to build systems of accountability. You're starting to build systems of finance management. You're starting to build systems of, of horizontal decision-making and accountability that you test out in that savings group and then later in your network and in your city-level federation. As these as city level federations then become very savvy um, players in the development space, and they're very, uh, a very, uh, very well ad um, adapted to understand the role of a politician versus the role of a technical professional. They can understand what is needed from the politician to get the buy-in and to get the sort of the right statements to support the upgrading or the whatever initiative they're pushing, but then they also most certainly need the technocrats to, to be the ones to continue the work and make sure that, that these political sort of statements are, are followed through. I think the, the, the micro-projects that they do also prepare them to hold um, government accountable for the projects and the, and the budget that they have. We see communities also then feeling like they have a, a right to ask questions, to monitor budgets, to um, visit municipal councils where that really truly, maybe 10 years ago in many of the cities where we work, wasn't the case. 
and now there's a more constant dialogue, there are more demands for, for accountability, there's more of a sense in the community and in the councils, uh, oftentimes, that this is just a, a standard part of practice. So I think these are sort of incremental uh, changes, but it's, yeah, this, this falls within the, the process of, of movement building as far as SDI is concerned. Thank you, Sky. Uh, we need to move to wrap up, but I'm aware there was an outstanding question in the room and online. So what I'd like to do is take those questions and then go back along our speakers, starting with Mark, and maybe you can wrap some, some thoughts into those final reflections from the questions. So I think there was a question from the lady here. Um, it wasn't a question. I just wanted to um, add to some of the comments on, you know, uh, the costing and the, and the funding from corporate organization. You know, in connection with um, Reki Ben Kaiser, Save the Children, we ran um, a program in Nigeria on, on Stop the Diarrhea program. And so we were working with the, the communities, with um, different stakeholders, government, and, um, you know, the universities, the different levels of the government to try to eradicate, you know, uh, sort of diarrhea as an underlying cost of child mortality. So we're looking at water, we're looking at sanitation, we're looking at all the different aspects of it. So this was funding coming in from record by side, uh, partnering, you know, with the government of Nigeria, with the local government, with the people, and trying to build in the process, we were building resilience. We were looking at community water supplies. We were looking at, you know, community-led total sanitation. And we were reviving government structures. You know, that's me. And the whole idea is that you do with, it's a pilot program that the government says that if it works and it's working, that they will then model and then roll it out as a big signature program. So, but we haven't gotten to the end yet, but we are in the process. But this is just like, you know, when you're talking of costing and corporate partnership. So this is a partnership between the corporate world, between, you know, an international NGO, and also with, um, with, the, look, uh, with the people. But so you know, th th that's just my comment on, on corporate funding. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a question online from Sam Barnard, who used to be a researcher here at ODI. He's now in the Department of Urban Planning at MIT, um, who says, are our current suite of development finance institutions with their need to engage almost exclusively through national governments really fit for purpose in addressing city-level challenges? Or do we need new global and regional institutions which are set up to deal with local governments directly? Um, so, no small task to answer all of that, but Mark, do you want to start with some, some kind of wrap-up thoughts and any responses to those comments and questions? Thanks. So the last comment was uh, well made, I think, around the need for direct funding uh, sub-national. If that uh, can be cracked, we'll move quickly. Um, just maybe one quick reflection then, wrapping up lots of the, the points and reflecting on science. And science, of course, is also a, a, an actor with power in cities that we need to consider as, as a researcher and otherwise. And, and certainly the lessons we've learned around urban arc are the need to act with humility, uh, but also to balance that humility with the sort of structural, another kind of structural view that science can bring. And one quick example of that is a collaboration in Nairobi with the Kunke Design Initiative working in Kibera. And they have nine community groups actually it's the example I referred to before where they're able to hold to account corporate style development and each of those groups initially work with to enhance uh, their awareness of flood risk and international alert who's in the room also work with them to uh, think through uh, conflict local conflict and the role that that plays in mapping out vulnerability 
but then an added layer with science and climate downscaling, seeing these, these settlements within Kibera at a different scale, connecting them to the watershed, suddenly requires a networked approach to deal with larger scale problems that individually the households and community groups weren't able to see. So, so kind of negotiating within ourselves and with partners the appropriate balance between humility and bringing uh, a wider, perhaps different scale approach to systemic problems is one of the challenges. Uh, and the, the second one I just quickly put out there is working in collaboration again in Urban Art with the, hum the um, Homeless People's Federation in McCrew. And they're accepting that science perhaps follows capacity building. So rather than trying to bring learnings from, in fact, some of Mtafu's work to the city, the first step is to work with the Homeless People's Federation, in fact, to allow them to have full control over doing what they do, which is building community groups that then Mtafu can, can interact with to generate uh, risk reduction as part of the community building effort. So science following on an established network of capacity building rather than sort of jumping in there and running around and trying to convert everyone to a DRR viewpoint. So again, a very sort of delicate negotiation. Thank you, Mark. Matafi, would you like to follow? Just, just one, one point, which I, I think is, is central, that uh, we didn't need to start from somewhere when we go into the communities. Uh, because uh, my experience is that uh, even the government itself, they always claim that the communities have no capacity. But when you go to the government, they don't have capacity either. So, so we have to start from somewhere, working with the community as well as going into the government. So as, as someone uh, coming in from maybe the university, you are almost taking on the role of mayor yourself. Because if you go to, to, to the community, you find that the structures which exist in the policies, they, they are not there on the ground. So, for example, in Malawi, we have the National Disaster Risk Management Policy. Well-laid well out structures in the policy. But when you go there, you have your proposal, you say, no, I will work with these structures. You go, they are not there. So you have to set up these structures on behalf of the government yourself. So to me, that shows that even the government doesn't have the capacity themselves. So it's only at that, st at, at that point that you would start now to do the, the small things that the community would benefit because you are now bringing awareness. Even though you are coming in for your research, you first of all also have to give awareness to the people that, do you know, the policy says you are supposed to have a, a community committee in this area and here it is written, but you don't have it. So that from there then you start doing the rest of the work. I thank you. Thank you, Matafu. Megan, would you like to follow? Yeah, I think my only last question would just be around, you know, the, for me, this growing feeling that there almost needs to be principles of engagement, of how you engage with cities and communities. And I think we all really have a responsibility to dumb down the, the complexity talk and, and using terms like wicked problems, etc., to make uh, playing within the realm of all of these different global agreements and local challenges manageable to city stakeholders and community members. And I think part of that is about understanding what are the priorities of whoever you're engaging with, whoever that stakeholder is, and then and then tailoring those messages in a way that they're able to take those up and, and come up with, with solutions in a more positive light. So 
for me, it's around those principles of engagement and some of those attitudinal issues that I think are important, but also about it trying to make complexity uh, not feel completely overwhelming to the vulnerable communities that we're really working to assist. Thank you, Megan. Sky, would you would you like to come in before I can finish with David? Uh, sorry, I was being unmuted as you asked the question. I didn't hear you. Would you like to provide us with a few final reflections, Sky? Uh, okay. Uh, final reflection. Uh, I think the the I'm grateful for the opportunity. I think uh, the the panel was very well assembled, and I would be really eager to take forward the discussion with some of of the members and anyone else who is part of the conference. Um, Moving forward, uh, yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you, Sky. And David, can, can I ask you also just to address this final question of global regional institutions for funding city governments? The most exciting thing that's happened to me in the last 10 years is to see the Federation setting up their own funds. So that if you want to fund the, um, the Kenyan Homeless People's Federation, you've got a, a foundation that will provide you with absolute accountability and transparency, far more than any other funding agency. And this funding agency is to allow the federations to increase the scale and the scope of what they do and to bring in city government. So in a sense, the two critical places we need to invest, city government, grassroots organizations, you already have the financial mechanisms to double, triple, quadruple, multiply 10, 20-fold the funding. Now, why haven't the international funding agencies got the imagination to see this potential and to support it? And that's what I don't understand. Thank you, David. Well, it's been a, a very rich and fascinating discussion. Thank you all for your contributions. It's been replete with examples and cases and fascinating, I think, in particular in its reflections on the processes of building partnership in and around uh, formal governance structures and with community movements in particular. Um, for those of us in London, there is tea and coffee now outside in the lobby, which you'll find just out there. Please do stay to carry on the conversations and get to meet other people. And to you, those of you online, thank you very much for your contribution. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, Find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.